Do what God calls you to do and refuse to be deterred by people who do not share your mission. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Mark 3, Mark chapter 3, we're continuing the Gospel of Mark. We talked a couple weeks ago about the differences between the Gospels. We mentioned that Matthew was about to what Jesus said. Luke was about how Jesus felt. John was about who Jesus was. And Mark is about what Jesus did. This is an action Gospel. The word immediately shows up 42 times in the Greek. It's really Peter's Gospel. Mark was the scribe. And Peter, of course, was a man of action. So this book reveals God's son busy working, serving God and serving God's people. And Mark actually begins his gospel, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, in the second year of Jesus' ministry. Jesus spent the first year of his ministry in Jerusalem, in southern Israel, around the Judea area. And then the second year of his ministry moves 70 miles north. Rob's going to show you a map from the Judea-Jerusalem area in the south, 70 miles north to the Sea of Galilee in the north. And his headquarters was really the fishing village of Capernaum, which is on the northwest upper left-hand corner of the, of the Sea of Galilee. You see there, it was a strategic village. It was the middle of two trade routes. The Via Maris came from the sea from all the way from Egypt and then passed right through uh, Capernaum on the way to Damascus and the King's Highway also. So it was a very strategic place that Jesus set up his ministry. He actually spent about 18 months there. So the first year of his three-year ministry was in Jerusalem, Judea, about 18 months in Capernaum, and then he spent the last six months working in northern Israel and then heading toward Jerusalem where he had a date with the cross. So Mark is proving in his gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he's doing that by immediately in the first three or four chapters of this book documenting multiple examples of Jesus' miracles. Jesus is not just claimed to be God, he's demonstrating, he's proving that he's God. He casts out demons, he heals sick people, so he documents power over the supernatural realm of Satan and over disease. As a matter of fact, he performs so many miracles that the crowds just mob him. It's just a flash mob scene wherever he goes. And so the first couple of chapters after that, Mark notes that Jesus actually left Capernaum because he couldn't even go anywhere without being mobbed. And he preached in the rural areas for a bit. When he came back, as we found out last week to Capernaum, he publicly heals a paralytic, probably a quadriplegic, who had been known to the community for years and years about being uh, a paralytic, and he demonstrates that he's God. He not only heals him of his physical ailments, he publicly forgives his sins. And that was a crossing point for the Pharisees. At that point in time, the Jewish religious leaders said, this guy has got to go. So Jesus, as he ministers, is really surrounded by three groups of people. You're going to notice this throughout all the Gospels. Number one, the crowds. Wherever Jesus goes, initially in his ministry, there are multitudes. There's a lot of people. I mean a lot of people. They've come from all over the 
uh, land and even some foreign countries, Tyre and Sidon up north. So there's the crowds. The second group are his disciples. Those are the people that follow him. Not just the 12, but he had a number of disciples bigger than that that followed him. And the third group is the Jewish religious leaders. Now, the crowds accepted Jesus, but very superficially. Quite frankly, they were not interested in his message. They were interested in his miracles. They followed because he put food in their tummy, healed their sick, cast out the demons. They wanted the miracles, not the message. The disciples are really committed to Jesus, but they're really clueless at this point in time. They really don't know who he is. They kind of think he's special, but they really haven't figured out that this is God in the flesh right here. They're going to increasingly be exposed to that. Jesus is going to tell them more and more directly. And the religious leaders, the third group, are increasingly more and more hostile. You are going to see them ramp up their opposition. You're going to see them ramp up their plotting. As a matter of fact, they really want to kill him because they recognize one thing. He represents a direct threat to their religious monopoly. They have a religious monopoly over the people, and they use the religion to keep people under their thumb. The common Jewish crowd person, if you will, a common citizen, was open to what Jesus had to say. The religious leaders were very, very opposed to that. They shadow his every step and they oppose his every move. And in this beginning in, in verse 20, of chapter 3, where we're going to start today, Mark highlights specifically the opposition that Jesus is going to experience. And he's going to experience opposition on two fronts. First, his family and friends, interestingly enough, they oppose his ministry, and then direct opposition from his enemies. So if you would be so kind, Mark 3, let's pick up the narrative in verse 20. And he came home, remember we talked that was Peter's house, he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. He has lost his mind. Here's the principle. Do what God calls you to do and refuse to be deterred by people who do not share your mission. Do what God calls you to do and refuse to be deterred by people who do not share your mission. Now, Jesus' family is in Nazareth. Nazareth is about 25 miles to the west of Capernaum. It's 1,300 feet above sea level. Sea of Galilee is 690 feet below sea level. So you got about, you know, a couple thousand feet elevation change between those two. And when they find out that Jesus doesn't even have time to eat, the word gets around that Jesus is mobbed by crowds. He's busy ministering. He doesn't have time to eat or sleep or anything like that. They travel the 25 miles east from Nazareth downhill to the Sea of Galilee on Capernaum. They're going to meet him. They love him, but they think he's lost his marbles. They think he's just over the edge. Overwork has ruined his health, and he's overstressed, and he's making bad choices. And today we would say, um, we would say he has an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Or he suffers from overwork, or he's a workaholic. He, his life is out of balance. So his family is legitimately concerned. Now you might think, well... Why would Jesus' own family, his mother Mary, and his, we know he had at least four half-brothers, right, because they're named. Why would they think Jesus has lost his mind? Think about it from the family standpoint. You grew up with Jesus. He's your older brother. 
or he's your oldest son. Now you realize that Jesus has been out of the house for about a year. He left home at 30. He's probably 31 now. And you're saying, my kid brother claims to be God. I think he has a Messiah complex. <laughs> you know, even as a kid, he always was different. I always got in trouble. He never got in trouble. He quit his day job as a carpenter. He left home and now he refuses to work for a living. Now he depends on the kindness of the followers, his followers, to feed and house him. I mean, without his followers, he'd be homeless and starving. That's just irresponsible. He also called 12 hardworking men, some of them fishermen, to quit their day jobs as well. And they just follow him around the country and preach and listen to him and cast out demons. I mean, that's just weird. He attracts such large crowds. I mean, he could be crushed and trampled. By the way, all the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they think he's a nutcase too. He doesn't even know enough to rest and take care of himself. While just the other night, he spent all night on a mountain praying all night long. And then he chose his posse of these 12 nobodies who just follow him around and, and do whatever he says. This feels like a cult. I mean, devotion's good, but Jesus is just fanatical. If we don't stage a family intervention and put him in protective custody, I mean, for his own good, he could harm himself. That's what his family's thinking. So Jesus' family comes down to Capernaum to take custody of him. That means to arrest him. Literally, take custody means to arrest him. And restrain him, all for his own good, of course. I used to work in mental health, and there was a mental health code 5150. 5150 is shorthand for a 72-hour involuntary hold. So if there's a, a patient or a, a, a person who you think may be a danger to themselves or a danger to others, you can, oh, under a 5150, you can put them under a 72-hour involuntary hold in a mental health facility. That's what his family's planning on doing. Now, his family may have had good motives. They may have loved him. But they didn't believe he was God any more than anyone else believed he's God. They certainly had no clue what God was calling Jesus to do. Jesus was not out of his mind. He was simply carrying out his Father's will. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples in John 9, 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. That's not fanaticism, by the way. That's just living a life that's guided by eternal purpose. The truth of it is, our life on earth is limited. The truth is, everything we do in this life does count forever. God keeps good records. The truth is, Jesus is preaching the gospel. Jesus is healing the sick. Jesus is casting out demons. And he refuses to be distracted by well-meaning but misguided people. He knows he's got less than two years to live. And he's got a lot of work to get done before the cross. You know, the application for us is pretty simple. Every one of us in this room has a job description that God gave you to do. And the job description you have is time limited because every one of you has an expiration date already stamped on your body. You just don't happen to know what it is. But Psalm 139 says, The days of our life were ordained by God before there was one of them. So we all have an expiration date, and Jesus alone knows what that is. Having that mission and that time frame should cause us then to live eternally purposeful lives like Jesus. I mean, if you knew for a fact that you were going to die tonight at sundown, 
How would it change how you spent this afternoon? Would it change how you spent this afternoon? I expect that many of us, even of us who know Jesus, if we knew we were going to be dead at sundown, it would make a significant difference. I had a friend of mine in this town that was told about 17 years ago by his doctor, I have no idea how his doctor knew, he said, you have 48 hours to live. He died in 48 hours. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if someone told me he had 48 hours to live. We would begin thinking about eternity in far more specific ways. So Jesus' own family thinks he's a fanatic. And by the way, it's very easy to get labeled as a fanatical Christian. When you're doing what's right and you're living a holy life, it convicts the conscience of the world. And they will call you crazy, misguided, fanatical. I mean, you can be a wild and crazy sports fan. When you want to see wild and crazy behavior, go to a football game. I mean, it's wild and crazy, man. They're yelling, screaming, drinking, betting, and they'll think you are normal. But when you put Jesus first in everything, the world feels guilty over their conduct. And they will put a label on you so they can discount your message. By the way, you're in very good company. They did exactly the same thing to Jesus. They called him fanatical. But see, not only is Jesus' family opposed to his ministry, so are the nation's religious leaders. Pick up the narrative in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, saying, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. Here's the principle. Only Jesus is strong enough to overpower Satan and set free those who are slaves to sin. Only Satan's Jesus is strong enough to overpower Satan and set free those who are slaves to sin. By the way, if you're not set free by Jesus, you are a slave. Period. You have no choice. You cannot do other than but sin. People say, well, I can choose to quit smoking. I just haven't decided. And you say, well, have you tried? I'll, I'll bet you, you can't quit for a week. Oh, I can quit any time. I just don't want to. The reality is, you can't. Sin is far worse than smoking. It'll guarantee kill you, and it'll kill you forever. So the issue here is, people say, I'm free without Jesus. No, you're not free without Jesus. You're a slave without Jesus. These scribes that came from Jerusalem were not just a random group. They were an official delegation from the religious leaders. This was the delegation sent from the, from the key leaders in Jerusalem, and they traveled 70 miles north to Capernaum to monitor every single thing Jesus said and every single thing Jesus did. And they're looking for reasons to discredit him so they can destroy him. They can't dispute his miracles. They can't deny his miracles. I mean, Jesus has done miracles that have been witnessed by hundreds of people. He has been healing the sick 24-7. There's tons of people with testimony saying, I had leprosy. I was blind. I had this infirmity. Jesus touched me and healed me. They're all over the region, right? 
He's been preaching the gospel with power. People are coming to faith in Christ and demons have been cast out. People have been healed and his words are changing lives. And so these leaders are in a big dilemma. It's obvious that they can't say, well, Jesus is just a mere man. Mere men don't do miracles and he's been doing hundreds of them. He claims to be God. So you might just say, well, he's a liar. He's just lying. Or he's a nutcase. He's a lunatic. Liars and lunatics can't do miracles. They got a problem. So they have to explain away the miracles using some form of supernatural power, but they have a problem. There's only two sources of supernatural power in the universe, God and his angels, Satan is his angels. If they acknowledge that Jesus is operating and performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, then they have to acknowledge that he's God. That they will not do. So they have to, in one way or another, explain his miracles by some other power source. And they do it by the power of Satan. They claim that he is possessed by Satan himself. In the Greek, by the way, the name for Satan is Beelzebul. B-U-L, bull, right? Beelzebul originally referred to the Philistine god of Ekron. It was one of the cities in Philistia. And Philistia is a city... A, city-state right next to Israel. And Beelzebul means Lord of the high place or Lord of the dwelling place. Originally, it meant the, Lord, the place where the evil spirits dwelt. Baal, B-A-A-L, means Lord or Master. So the Jews changed the name Beelzebul, B-U-L, to Beelzebub, B-U-B. And Beelzebub means Lord of the dung, Lord of the manure heap, or Lord of the flies, which inhabited the manure heap, right? So years ago, there was a very famous book called Lord of the Flies. Well, that's what Beelzebub means. So the Jews were very sarcastic. They called Satan Beelzebub. They called him the Lord of the Dung Heap. And now they are calling the Holy Lord of Heaven, Jesus Christ himself, by the foulest, vilest blasphemy possible. They claim that the Son of God is possessed by the Lord of the Dung Heap. That's pretty insulting. They claim that Jesus does not have the power in himself to cast out demons, but depends upon the power of Satan to cast out demons. You know, this would have been a good time if you and I had the power for those 12 legions of angels that Jesus talked about. I'd have just said, take them out of here. But Jesus doesn't do that because he's God and he loves people, even his enemies. Very, very patient, which I'm very grateful for because I was his enemy and he was patient with me and you were as well. So Jesus calls these religious leaders who are calling him the vilest, foulest names and he calls them to himself and he speaks to them in parables or analogies. By the word, the word parable means to lay alongside of or to throw alongside of. So if, if there's a new idea and you want to understand this new idea, one of the best ways to do it is lay that new idea alongside an idea you already understand. And then when you compare the two, you'll have a better understanding of the new idea. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the parable of the sower and the seeds and the soils as an illustration. God uses that. Jesus uses that at that point. So a parable is really an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. 
it's, it's a common everyday experience uh, that illustrates and makes clear a spiritual lesson. So Jesus is going to use this methodology now with these people who want to kill him, the Pharisees and the scribes. And like all good teachers, Jesus begins with a question. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Good question. I mean, Satan, number one, is not omnipotent. Number two, Satan's a very rational creature, very evil, but very rational. He doesn't want to destroy his own kingdom. Why would you want to do that? Satan and his demons are most effective when they're invisible. Why, Jesus says, why would Satan expose his own demons who are undercover, who are very effectively tempting people to sin, who are very effectively distracting people from the truth when they're in the, when they're in the synagogue? Why would Satan expose his own demons and throw them out? Why would that make any sense? Because remember, Jesus has been casting out demons. And they're saying, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, it doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan want to destroy his own kingdom? He's not on a suicide mission. Why would he throw his own demons out? They're very effective when they're inside people, possessing people, and invisible. Then Jesus states a principle, an axiom. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus on June 16, 1858. He had just been nominated by the state of Illinois as their representative, the Republican nominee for the Senate. And he quoted Jesus on this date and his acceptance speech. And he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other thing. Jesus Christ said the same thing when he said, no one can what? Serve two masters. You're going to have one or the other. Now, this is pretty obvious. If you're going to have unity, if you're going to have unity, you must have stability. Right? You've all heard the commentary or the complimented, I guess, the, the truism, divide and conquer. So the, the way you conquer something is to divide it. Right? The best way to destroy anything is to destroy its unity by dividing it. Success comes from sticking together. We have a comment, I have a comment about some of our political processes, and, and my comment is, you cannot sink half the boat. You cannot sink half the boat because if one half sinks, the whole boat is lost. And many times you look at our political processes in, in positions of power, whether it's Sacramento or, or, or Washington, and we, we, we behave toward each other as if we can sink half, their half of the boat. Well, as long as your half of the boat goes down, that's no problem. Well, if their half of the boat goes down, your half of the boat's going to sink as well. You know, you're dividing. When you divide the boat in half, it all sinks. You conquer it. Success comes from sticking together. That's why Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A boat divided against itself is going to sink. So Jesus is making a pretty obvious point. If Satan's working against himself, if Satan is casting out his own demons, his kingdom's not going to last. He's tearing it down with his own hands. And we say, well, that's pretty obvious, Brad. I mean, we experience that in our life today. If you take division far enough, Divided 
couples divorce, if you take it far enough. If you take it far enough, divided nations engage in civil war. That is not a recipe for stability, durability, or long-term success. A house divided is going to fall. James even takes it one step further. He said a double-minded person, a person with a divided mind, is what? Unstable in all their ways. So this business of being divided not only applies to Satan's kingdom, it applies to earth's nations, it applies to our marriages, it applies to churches, it divide, applies to families, it even applies to ourself. Being a double-minded person is unstable and you will fall apart if you do enough of that. So in verse 27, Jesus is going to illustrate the principle. He says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods or his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, this is a metaphor. The, the strong man is Satan. The strong man is Satan. Satan's house is his spiritual kingdom located on planet Earth. Satan has a spiritual kingdom, by the way, and it's headquartered here on planet Earth. You want to know why things are falling apart? It's real simple. Satan is running planet Earth because Adam failed. When Adam and Eve, God intended, by the way, Adam and Eve to govern planet Earth, they were supposed to be his vice regents. They were supposed to rule the planet as God's representative. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit and fell into sin, they forfeited their position as governor over planet Earth to Satan, who enslaved them to sin and usurped their role as ruler over the Earth. Now, Satan is a spirit, so he doesn't possess physical property, right? There's no physical property. What does Satan possess? People. Satan's property are the demons he controls and the people he possesses that are enslaved by sin. So Satan's property are people who are slaves to sin. How many people are slaves to sin? Most of the world, anyone who's not been set by free by Jesus is a slave to sin and is under the authority and the rule and the control and the power of Satan. So Jesus is saying, you can't invade a strong man's house unless you bind him. Well, if Satan is the strong man and this world is his property and the people he has slaves are in fact what he controls... Jesus has now invaded Satan's kingdom. He is plundering Satan's kingdom because he's binding Satan and he's casting out demons from people and setting them free from Satan's rule. That's the message of the cross. We move people from bondage to sin and death and move them into God's kingdom where there's freedom from sin and life and light. So Jesus has invaded Satan's kingdom in order to destroy it. This is a declaration of war that was made in Genesis 3 when God told Satan, I'm going to send the seed of the woman and he's going to kill you. John, 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's warfare. If you want to know why there is such hatred and why 
God's people are under fire, it's because when you follow Jesus, you have declared war on Satan. The good news is, 1 John 4, 4, as we talked about two weeks ago, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit is greater than Satan. So the scribes and Pharisees make this claim that Jesus' power is not adequate to cast out demons. He doesn't operate by the power of the Holy Spirit. He operates by the power of Satan. That's obviously a pretty major mistake because Jesus' power, Jesus' miracles clearly demonstrate that his power is greater than Satan's. He's casting out demons. Someone has said that Satan is like a dog on God's leash. Uh, no matter how much noise he makes, he can't go beyond the limits of his chain. And I was talking to someone the other day and they said, I wish God would shorten his leash up a little bit. Because sometimes that chain seems to keep going and going and going, right? Jesus then makes, in front of the Pharisees, one of the most astonishing claims. Verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Here's the principle. Jesus is God's only provision to forgive sin. So when you reject Jesus, your sins will never be forgiven. Jesus is God's only provision to forgive sin. So when you reject Jesus, your sins will never be forgiven. Thirteen times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says, I say to you, he's speaking from his own authority as the very Son of God. First, the good news. All classes and all types of sin are forgivable. Jesus is not teaching universalism. Everyone's going to go to heaven. That is definitely not the case. Jesus says, God is a God who delights to forgive all kinds of sins. One of the reasons you should read the Bible every day, it's the power of God, but it also is meant to encourage. And when you read the biographies of God's saints, you will notice that they are like you and me. They are human and they do sin and God's word is painfully honest in describing the failings of his own children. It's also enormously encouraging that God's word acknowledges and highlights God's response to human sin, which is forgiveness. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, father, son, and grandson, were all congenital liars, every single one of them. They just learned bad habits from dad and grandpa. Both Lot and Noah got drunk. And they got drunk with disastrous results. Moses was a murderer. David was both an adulterer and a murderer. Judah committed sexual immorality with his own daughter-in-law. Manasseh, king of Judah, sacrificed his own children, burned his own children to death 
the idol Moloch. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Paul killed God's followers. And every single one of these saints were forgiven because they repented and God delights to forgive sin. Now, when Jesus came to earth in the incarnation, he took on human flesh at birth. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself and set aside the prerogatives of his deity. In other words, he laid aside the power he had in heaven. Jesus, as a man, was a servant, and he was completely submissive to his Father's will while he was on earth. So he's a model for us. What we may not understand is that Jesus was completely also dependent on the power and direction of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he accomplished on planet earth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was present at his baptism. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. The Holy Spirit gave him the power to overcome Satan's temptation. It says when he returned to Galilee, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. The very first sermon Jesus preached in Mark chapter 1 was in his own hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue. And he quotes Isaiah 61 at that very first sermon which prophesied the work the Messiah would do. This is not found in Luke, it's found in Mark. <coughs> I'm sorry, not in Mark, but in Luke. Luke 4. This is Jesus' very first sermon. Very first words of his public sermon came out of his mouth, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he, the Holy Spirit, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He, the Holy Spirit, has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then immediately, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus began to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to set free those who were enslaved to sin and Satan. So it not only fulfilled prophecy, it was, it was supernatural proof that Jesus was in fact of God. Jesus only worked through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we look and we say, well, didn't he have his own power? I mean, he was God. Yes, but he laid that aside when he came as a human. He operated under the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. I say that because I want to, I want to lay the groundwork here. Let's talk about the unforgivable sin. Jesus said there is an unforgivable sin. It's non-pardonable and it's eternal. What is he talking about? The unforgivable sin is not some especially heinous or grossly immoral sin or action. The unforgivable sin is not breaking one of the Ten Commandments or even breaking all the Ten Commandments or maybe breaking all the Ten Commandments on Friday night before midnight. That's not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is not any single isolated action against God. Jesus said the unforgivable sin is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Now, blaspheme means to slander, which means to sin with your mouth. Slander is speech. To blaspheme means to speak against God, to lie about God, to say things about God that are false, hostile, malicious, derogatory. So what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Well, the only way people can know Jesus is through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
You and I came to Christ because why? The Holy Spirit called you, convicted you of sin, opened your eyes of your heart to understand who Jesus was. None of us came to God. None of us came to Jesus Christ on our own. None of us. The Holy Spirit drew us. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father, number one, through me, but no one comes unless the Father draws him, and that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Jewish religious leaders said that Jesus' power to exercise demon came from Satan. They attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. That is slander. It's a lie. It's malicious. It's derogatory. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They were saying the work of the Holy Spirit came from Satan. So they rejected what the Holy Spirit revealed about Jesus. Of course, then you say, well, what did the Holy Spirit reveal about Jesus? Well, the Holy Spirit revealed that Jesus is the Son of God who came to forgive the sins of the world. Now, I want you to think what's going on here. The scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, have full knowledge of the deity of Christ. They knew the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied his coming. They've been witnessing for weeks and months now supernatural miracle after supernatural miracle that proves that Jesus is God. They had heard him speak. They had been convicted of sin. They had seen the lame walk, the dumb speak, the blind see, the demon possessed, set free. They had seen the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And despite this full revelation of Jesus' deity, they rejected it. They said, this guy operates in the power of Satan. So the unforgivable sin is the persistent and willful rejection of Jesus as Savior and Lord, despite the knowledge and understanding of the gospel that comes through the Holy Spirit. When you reject Jesus Christ's sacrifice for your sin, you are rejecting God's only provision to pay for your sins. There is no plan B. It's Jesus or nothing. There's no other option. When people reject Jesus, what they're saying is, I choose to pay for my sins myself. And you will. And our sin is so heinous and so awful that to pay for it for yourself will take eternity. That's called hell. It says, I choose to pay for my sins myself, and it will take forever for you and I to pay for our own sins. We don't understand the awfulness of sin because we fail to understand the holiness of God. Our sins are so bad that it took the death of the Son of God to pay the freight for the sin. That should give us some idea of the seriousness with which God views sin and how much God hates sin. I am amazed that God lets any of us live. I'm serious. He hates my sin. He hates my sin every second I live. But he sees me through the blood of his son. Because Jesus got justice, you and I have mercy. Hebrews 10:26 really highlights what happens if we reject with knowledge the gift of Jesus Christ as the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10:26. For if we go on sinning willfully, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? That's precisely what the Pharisees and scribes have been doing. So the point here is to know the gospel, to be exposed to the truth, and to persistently reject it leads to certain judgment because there is no other solution for human sin other than payment. Either Jesus' payment or you pay for it yourself. The scribes and Pharisees had full knowledge. And by the way, if you've been in this church, you have full knowledge as well. None of us in this church can say, God, I didn't know the truth. We know the truth. If you persist, if people persist in telling God, my will be done. And by the way, you don't have to say that to God. You can just live it. But if you persist in saying, my will be done, and you persist long enough, one day God will say, thy will be done. Or in the vernacular, have it your way. Right? You want to live eternity without me? I give you your way. I am amazed and almost struck dumb by people who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ for the first 80 years of their life. And then they say, well, I'm going to spend eternity with him. I say, you can't stand him now. You want nothing to do with him now and somehow you're going to spend eternity with him? It doesn't add up, right? So when God lets you have your own way, you have passed the point of repentance and you have entered the realm of judgment. Because if God ever says to you, have it your way, that is judgment. Because your way is never God's way without the indwelling Holy Spirit, without the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sins. Unredeemed, none of us chose God. None of us chose God. He called us and we responded to his loving call at that point. Three times in Romans 1, very sobering chapter, Paul speaks of God giving people over to their destructive desires. They know the truth. It says they repress the truth. They don't want to know the truth. Don't destroy me with the facts. I made up my mind. I've seen Jesus do miracles. I've seen him heal the sick. I've seen him cast out demons. He's not God. He's doing it by the power of Satan. That is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And we have a whole culture that does that today. We have a whole culture that does that. The scientific evidence that validates the existence of God is called the universe. That's a rather large fingerprint of the Holy Spirit that requires significant explanation. And we have come up with some of the wildest and craziest theories to explain the existence of the universe that absolutely make no sense. And we buy them as dogma because we don't want to face God. That's suppressing the truth. And at some point in time, one of the things we've talked about in this class, for those of you that are new, we've said sin makes you stupid. God is the source of all wisdom. Sin separates you from God. The more you sin, the further away from God you get. And the further away from God you get, the stupider you become. So when the culture makes decisions that we as Christians go, what are they thinking? 
You have the Holy Spirit who shines light of truth. So you see things from God's standpoint. You see reality. They don't see reality. They're in rebellion against God. And so they're going to continue to be foolish and foolish and more foolish. At some point in time, God no longer calls people to repent. And he says, have it your way. And at that point in time, judgment is certain. I am humbled that repentance is a gift from God. Many of us think, how many of you talk to people? I've talked to so many people. You know, later on, I'll make my peace with God on my deathbed. Really? So you think you can just choose to repent whenever you want? Repentance is a gift. The apostle Peter goes to preach to Cornelius. Remember the Roman centurion? So he preaches to this, this Gentile Roman centurion household, and he says, God, uh, before he goes, God shows him this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven, remember, and all the unclean animals are in it. And God says, rise, Peter, kill any. He goes, God, I can't touch that. That's unclean. I'm kosher. Don't you know I'm a good Jewish boy? We don't eat any of that stuff. God says, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. Immediately, Peter gets the call and the messengers come and say, you go to Cornelius and preach the gospel to him. He preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius' household. They accept Jesus Christ by faith. Peter then baptizes them. The Gentiles are part of the family of God just like the Jews are. Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he gets taken to task by the Jewish believers. And they said, you went into a Gentile's home? You ate with them? And he says, let me tell you the story. He said, they have the Holy Spirit just like we did. They were speaking in tongues just like we were. And the Jewish believers say, then God has given them the gift of repentance. The ability to repent is itself a gift from God. Aaron Burr, most of you know Aaron Burr. He was the one who killed Alexander Hamilton. He was a brilliant student at Princeton University. Matter of fact, his academic records there lasted well over a century. When he was enrolled there, a great revival broke out, and Aaron Burr became very convicted of his sin. One of his professors gave him a Bible and said, Aaron, take this Bible to your room and settle this matter on your knees. But instead of kneeling, he tried to shake off the conviction the Holy Spirit had in his life about sin. The Holy Spirit was really bringing conviction to him about sin. Finally, in desperation, he records that he cried out to God, Oh God, let me alone and I'll let you alone. He later recounted that as soon as he said this, all conviction of sin left him. Many years later, a friend tried to introduce him to Jesus Christ. Aaron Burr told him, from that day to this, I've never had one desire to become a Christian. When the Holy Spirit calls your heart, don't refuse Him. Because when, when He stops calling, salvation becomes impossible. Verse 31. Then His mother and His brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to Him and called Him. A crowd was sitting around, and they said to Him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, Jesus said, Who are my brother and my mother? 
Looking about those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here's the principle. Spiritual family is more important than physical family. Many of you know this by hard experience. And everyone who obeys the will of God belongs to Jesus' family. Spiritual family is more important than physical family, and everyone who obeys the will of God belongs to Jesus' family. So finally, Mary and the, his half-brothers, they arrive in Capernaum. Jesus is busy healing the sick, teaching the gospel, casting out demons. The house he's in are jam-packed, and his family can't even get inside to see him. So they send word in. We're here. Send Jesus out. We want to talk to him. They expect that, of course, Jesus is going to stop his ministry, walk out of the house, and meet with them. And their goal, of course, as we found out earlier, is to restrain his activity. He needs to slow down. He needs to stop doing so much ministry. He's losing his senses, so they were trying to get to him. And when the messenger comes in and says, by the way, your, your, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you, Jesus looks around at those sitting around him. These are his disciples. And he asks a question. He says, what kind of people are my family? What kind of people are my family? He says, those who follow me are my family. Those who obey me are my family. Now, you have to understand, in Jewish society, this was shocking. Because first century Jewish society highly valued family relationships. Family relationships were really, really important. I mean, if you were son, daughter, mother, I mean, it was honored. Family, blood family relationships were crucially important. And Jesus says, spiritual family is a higher priority than physical family. We know this. The deepest bonds between people are spiritual bonds that are forged by the Holy Spirit. The most intimate human relationships are always spiritual, more than physical or more than emotional. Earthly families are God's gift to us, but they're time limited, right, to here on earth. Jesus' kingdom family is going to last forever in heaven. So who belongs to Jesus' family? Jesus says, my family are anyone who does God's will. Not just talks about it, actually does it. So here's an interesting question for y'all. If you want a more intimate relationship with Jesus, do what he says. I know it sounds simple. Jesus told his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. There's two extremes, I guess, in our view of human families. One is to neglect the family. Of course, the other hand is to worship the family, and both of those are not of God. The Bible does command us to love and provide for our own families. On the other hand, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Because if you love something more than God, you have an idol. Your idol can be your spouse. Your idol can be your children. And for those in the room here, your idol can be your grandchildren, especially. Brad, you had to say it. <laughs> Why? Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. By the way, the best way to love your family is to love Jesus more than your family. You all know this in the room, but I will tell you, if you're single... This is for you. Never marry anyone 
who does not love Jesus more than they love you. Write it down. Never marry anyone who does not love Jesus more than they love you. Period. When you love Jesus with everything you are, he will love your family through you with everything he is. Did you hear that? When you love Jesus with everything you are, he will love your family through you with everything he is. And his love is better and stronger and more enduring than yours. He will teach you to love your family with his divine love. And by the way, no matter how much you think you love your family, Jesus can teach you to love them more. But that only works when we love Jesus more than any other human love. You know, Christians around the world, in many cases, are rejected by their blood relatives for following Jesus. Some part of the world, if you follow Jesus, your blood relatives are commanded to execute you. Very hard to hear. But God has family members all over the world. That's why we say, as part of God's family, God's people, we do life together, right? Here on earth. But God's family does life together forever in heaven. Phenomenal. Okay, let's summarize, and then I'll ask Tom to come up and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, do what God calls you to do and, be, and refuse to be deterred by people who do not share your mission. God has a mission for you to do. Get on with it and don't get distracted from it because there's a lot of people on the planet who is not in your calling and not sharing your mission. Number two, only Jesus is strong enough to overpower Satan and set free those who are slaves to sin. Number three, Jesus is God's only provision to forgive sin. So when you reject Jesus, your sins will never be forgiven. And lastly, Spiritual family is more important than physical family. Everyone who obeys the will of God belongs to Jesus' family. That's one of the reasons we can say with the degree of certainty we do that God's people do life together. Okay, uh, Lord willing, next week we will be in Mark 4, the parable of the sower and the seeds. By the way, read ahead, open the word, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. In the next 167 hours till I see you again. And I do love you. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.